Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, September 10th, 2021. I'm John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine, which you can read at www.commentary.org, where we give you a few free reads and then ask you to subscribe with me as always, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And, ex- and yeah, boof. Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Almost got a uh, promotion there. Hi, John. I keep doing that, and you know, one day you're going to sue me uh, <laughs> over this. But uh, guys, I'm I'm sorry, but I have to take a victory lap. We we ended the show yesterday with a betting pool on when uh, Joe Biden would speak, uh, deliver his speech on COVID, which was planned for 5 p.m. And I just want to uh, cite the fact that. Um, uh, Noah, you said 528. Kristen, you said 615. Abe said 518. And then I took the under at five. And in fact, he started speaking at 502. So I win. You win. The dishwasher the is yours. We get the I, sad trombone. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I, I am the winner. And I think uh, that this speaks to the fact that this was a speech as I think, Noah, as you said at the end of the show yesterday, this is a speech he wanted to give. Uh, this is an event that he planned and wanted to happen, and I believe wanted to happen because he was seeking desperately to change the topic from the continuing horror in Afghanistan, the continuing fact that there are those six planes in Mazar Sharif which are still not taking off, um, and uh, God knows what is going on behind the scenes. So he wanted to show a resolute, strong, firm, determined approach on COVID that would somehow unite his increasingly um, uh, confused base. Uh, and um, it was a very, very, very bad speech. But we it was a bad speech in, internally, but we can get to that in a, in a little bit. Let's just talk substantively about the uh, the policies that he enumerated, in particular, this policy that uh, that he is uh, going to use the Department of Labor and the uh, Occupational Safety and Health Administration to force all companies over 100 people to require vaccination or weekly testing or have them uh, face fines of up to $14,000 a day or something like that. Uh, what do we make of this? It's very confused policy. Uh, I think it's constitutionally suspect. Uh, a lot of others seem to think so too. That was my initial instinct. Um, but I don't know the jurisprudence around this sort of thing, so I can't say one way or the other. It's simply politically contradictory to the point where I feel like, you know, the people who who are saying very conspiratorially that this is an effort to distract from Afghanistan, I don't think they're wrong because it contradicts wholly the administration's approach to this issue a week ago. Literally, CDC director and Jen Psaki both said this administration will not pursue any sort of federal, uh, federally enforced vaccination mandate outside of the parameters of, the executive, of executive agencies, federal agencies, um, because there's no authority there. The authority simply doesn't exist. This is what Jen Psaki said. And all of a sudden, the authority exists now. Um, I think that's very dubious. Um, given how the uh, administration, the president, president in particular, approached 
um, the expansion or extension rather of the moratorium on evictions, he should get no grace period. He should get no deference regarding his assumption of constitutionality. He's demonstrated a willingness to um, uh, subvert the subvert the constitution in the pursuit of political objectives. And I don't see how this survives review in the courts, which means it's not necessarily a policy that they're seeking to impose because they want outcomes. There's a particular outcome that they're seeking here. As you said in that very confused speech, we're, we're not clear what the outcome here, who the audience is, uh, what it's designed to achieve. What it's designed to achieve is frankly the only thing that I think it, it could actually achieve, which is to change briefly the narrative. There's yeah the timing issue is very suspect right because if if their argument is that the Delta variant has made this sudden need to reverse their position on a federal mandate necessary then why didn't they do it earlier if it was really that imminent because we're actually on the downside of the of the Delta spike so it doesn't make sense in that regard and as to the legal challenges it's very complicated there was a, a law professor in Virginia who's already won a lawsuit against his uh, university because he had COVID recovered could prove that he had antibodies and didn't want to take the vaccine and he won. So it's not just that there's, you know, that it's very easy and we have had Supreme, the Supreme Court has upheld mandatory vaccinations. We have, there's a case law there. So there is a precedent for, for, uh, demanding this. However, it's quite complicated when you get into the actual enforcement mechanisms here. And OSHA as the enforcer seems like something that there's plenty of room for legal challenge. More, more, moreover, and I think this is the tell here, is the backdoor imposition of mandatory paid time off in this order, which is a progressive wish list item. It's in the $3.5 trillion, $3 trillion reconciliation bill. It's something they've been trying to get passed through legislation and they can't get it passed through legislation. So they're imposing it via an executive agency through as, you know, under the guise of public health. It reeks of politics. Okay. Um, so, what, if this, yeah. what if this is more of what we talked about yesterday in terms of the, the administration going after um, Trump appointed board members uh, or, or a, a Trump appointed high profile figures? In other words, this is them essentially going after what they what what the administration's base looks at as Trumpians, right? And what? and so, so this is this is that is that is the pivot away from Afghanistan. It's 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 an it's it's more part of the let's go back to attacking Trump by proxy campaign, right? Well, okay. So if we, I think that's an important point to bring up in relation to this specific issue of the use of OSHA as a lever to force private businesses to do certain things. Um, according to Walter Olson, uh, our, our friend who knows more about the regulatory state than anybody on earth, as far as I can tell, um, the uh, OSHA, what OSHA would use is something called Emergency Temporary Standards Authority, or ETS. And uh, Walter dug up a Congressional Research Service report that notes that the agency has rarely used this authority in the past. Indeed, uh, not since the court struck down uh, its em Emergency Temporary Standards on asbestos in 1983, so we're talking about almost 40 years in which uh, the notion that uh, you can use this uh, emergency temporary standard of OSHA, which I assume is in place when there is uh, to give them the power when there is some kind of catastrophic 
type of accident where you learn that a certain specific thing that's in the workplace would explode and therefore they can sort of cut through the red tape and say, everybody who's got this thing, get it out of your factory now, right? That's sort of what it's for. Uh, something uh, turns out to be, uh, you know, of immense danger. Um, this fact would make it seem likely that it would not survive any kind of, not only a, con- a constitutional challenge, that it is, some version of making legislation through the executive branch and that and that challenged in the courts it would likely lose in which case we're back in the universe of executive branches doing things that they know the courts will reject and doing them anyway uh in order to make a grandiose point the grandiose point being uh in Biden's case there are 80 million uh people who are eligible for vaccination who have not been vaccinated and I'm going to use every power at my disposal to compel their vaccination. So there are things that he can do that involve those employees directly of the executive branch from whom from him all the powers and existence and authority of the executive branch flow of the President of the United States. So he can say you all get vaccinated or you're not working here anymore right and that's a couple million people uh but it's only a couple million people so uh that's that's where this comes down is that we're yet back in the i have a pen and a phone business i know i probably can't do this but i'm going to do it anyway he said in december 2020 you can't put a vaccine mandate on and here we are and it's September of 2021, and he's doing it. Well, they argue it's not a vaccine mandate. They argue that you're free to opt out. You just have to submit to weekly testing. Um, the logistics of which I think are, are kind of difficult to imagine. But I mean, that's that would be the that would be the logic that would lead a court to slap an injunction on this thing is the the cost burden, the organizational burden that they're imposing on businesses and small firms that. Exceeds the federal government's remit. Well, and can we just can we just talk for one second about one of the rationalizations he tried to make for for his justification for this expansion of of, of authority, which is that we have to protect the vaccinated from the unvaccinated, which makes no sense because the vaccinated are already protected. That's what the vaccine is. No, he's that, feeding into this well, idea that, that the vaccines don't work, which is always the problem and why a lot of people aren't getting vaccinated. It's like, a, I feel like I'm in a, caught in a loop here. Am I wrong? That is the most revelatory thing that he said during that, that speech. And it, you, all of it should be disregarded, save that phrase. Because that phrase is the key to unlocking everything that we're dealing with now in the post-pandemic era. We've been in the post-pandemic era for quite some time, and they can't let go of it because of that logic. Okay, but what Christine is is hitting on is the reason that it's a really bad speech and why it is not going to help him in any way, shape, or form. He gets up and says rightly and justifiably, that if you are fully vaccinated, right, and uh, 60-some-odd percent of everybody over the age of 18 in the United States is now fully vaccinated, which means that in three weeks, 75% of the United States over the age of 18 Americans 
will be fully vaccinated, okay, that's who's at risk of hospitalization and death from COVID even now with the Delta variant, that they have a 1 in 160,000 chance of being hospitalized, not dying. He said summer data say 1 in 160,000, meaning you are a vaccinated person, you are safe. Get vaccinated and you will be safe from the Delta variant. We know this, and if you are vaccinated, you are safe. That was message one. And then message two is, we have to move heaven and earth to get the unvaccinated vaccinated to protect the vaccinated. He is telling the vaccinated that they're not at risk, except they are. And as I said in my uh, highly controversial New York Post column today that I filed last night after the speech, uh, he this is a speech aimed at neurotic vaccinated people, like the Slate writer that we talked about yesterday. This is a speech that says, you're vaccinated, you're not at risk, but w- you think you're at risk, and so we are going to punish or do what we can to force all these other people to get vaccinated to protect you when I just said two minutes ago, you don't need any more protection. And to continue to punish, well, and to continue to punish the vaccinated by forcing mask wearing, because he did double down on the masks in this speech too, which I think is another error in judgment in terms of trying to encourage further vaccination. Right. In any case, I think the point here is that he said, our patience is coming to an end. Our patience. Now, I'm with him on this. My patience is at an end with the unvaccinated. You're all a bunch of idiots or crazy people if you are unvaccinated and you believe garbage and nonsense and lies and they're pouring in your head and you're afraid of needles so you're a chicken or you are believing nonsense which makes you an idiot. So my patience is at an end. I am, however, not the president of the United States who works for every person in this country as an employee, including the unvaccinated. And he should talk more nicely to them. This is not the way a president of the United States should speak to his constituents, particularly if he is trying to use the power of the bully pulpit to help convince them to do something that is in their interest and the healthcare system's interest and the interest of the very unlikely prospect that this variant is now going to create another variant that will, in fact, elude the vaccines. Because I think if that were going to happen, it would have happened already. Delta has now been around for four months or something like that. And there is no evidence that it is mutating into something more dangerous. So I think I, I agree with you. And, and the problem with this is that it it hardens anti-vax sentiment or or it hardens the collective anti-vax sentiment or the the um, activism around it, because the anti-vax argument is that citizen, U.S. citizens are sort of um, being uh, uh, they're sort of under attack. Their, their rights are being impinged upon uh, by the administration Vaccine mandates are coming. Uh, the anti-vaxxers have been saying that since since long before there was any indication that there would be anything like this. To now give them something like this, 
gets them to say, see, you laughed at me when I said that that vaccine mandates were coming. Now they're trying to take away our jobs if I don't if I don't get a, a mandate. This is an outrage. We need to do something. So it's going to ramp up the crazy while it goes through the legal proceedings, uh, which which, you know, as we, we don't even know what the outcome of that would be. Let me also point out that by doing what you're talking about, Abe, he may be interfering with what has been sotto voce and kind of in the background happening, which is increased vaccination levels from the low point in the summer. Something like eight, nine hundred thousand people are getting vaccinated every day. Those vaccine, the vaccination numbers are going up, right? So, in fact, most people in America are getting vaccinated. And a lot of people in America are waiting so that their kids can get vaccinated, waiting for that to happen, for the under 12s, for that to be authorized for them. And uh, he is, and according to uh, a quote that I, Christine, you dug up, I think, uh, I don't know where this was, but a White House official is like, look, this is a 75-25 issue or something like that. Most people are getting vaccinated. He's siding with the vaccinated against the unvaccinated. Well, Fine. I mean, I agree with that. Like most people are getting vaccinated. If that's the case, then uh, this notion of creating a regime under which uh, you are forcing the employers of 100 million people to become the enforcement mechanism for vaccination for for a public campaign, uh, if they don't want to, is a very weird proposition. Well, that's so that's the demographic he didn't speak to at all, right? People who are pro-vaccination, the kind, I, I'm thinking it's kind of some of us, right? We're pro-vaccination. We really think everybody needs to get vaccinated. We think the ones who aren't getting vaccinated are being foolish. But that doesn't necessarily translate into, I want the federal government mandating this for every American. I'm not on, I'm not on board with that. I don't, I don't agree with that. And I think the way, and, and to have an administration that has so bungled its public health messaging on this issue since the, since day one makes it even less trustworthy a messenger for saying, trust us, trust us now. You can trust us now. We're going to mandate this. We know it's fine. And to Abe's earlier point, it doesn't just, it doesn't just, it's not just an I told you so moment for vax skeptics. It's an I told you so or or heightened skeptical moment for people who didn't want to believe what the government said about the safety of vaccines either. This is going to bring all of those safety issues up again. What are they not telling us? What do they claim then that they're going to reverse in six months like they did with the mandate? That's right. You can't say don't be scared and be scared in the same breath. I mean, I'm unaware of any act of presidential communication that has this level of contradiction in its delivery of its message. Either the vaccines are good and protect you against the Delta variant, and therefore, if you get the if you've gotten the vaccines and you're fully vaccinated, you are fine and can entirely go about your life without any concern, or they're not. You can't say in minute two that that's the case, and then say in minute 10, I'm doing this to protect you from the unvaccinated. Now, I suppose you could make the case that we need to be protected from the unvaccinated and the costs that they are incurring on the healthcare system, or in a more general sense, right? That they are they are they are they are creating a new surge of cases in hospitals. They're crowding out hospital beds and doing all that, and that therefore. 
the country writ large needs to be protected from them because they are imposing social costs on the country. Okay, the well, then you could ban all fast food, cigarettes, and alcohol under the well, same exact logic because it yeah. clogs the healthcare system as well because right. it clogs people's arteries. So Right. Well, I mean, don't, don't get me started because, you know, there are plenty of people who believe in exactly that, want fat taxes and sugar taxes and all of that kind of stuff. And that is an interesting aspect where this dovetails with nanny statism. It's like, here's the nanny state, two faces of the nanny state. You will force everyone who works for you to get vaccinated. I am telling you right now, using the powers of the Department of Labor, and you're going to pay for the time that they, that they if they go off and get vaccinated, and you're going to pay for that. Now, I don't think that that's a terrible thing. Actually, it takes an you know it takes 15 minutes to get vaccinated. No big deal. If an employer won't like you know won't do that, that employer is a pretty lousy employer. And at a time of labor shortages and the fact that there are nine million jobs going begging in the United States, I think that that person will probably lose a good employee who's gone off to get vaccinated if they're like, no, I'm docking you pay to get vaccinated. That's just where are the religious exemptions? Where are the health exemptions for people who are allergic to latex, for example? Where is that protection? It's unconstitutional. Well, I don't even understand what it means for there to be. uh, We we do not accept. If I believe, if I understand it, where vaccination is concerned, we do not accept religious exceptions. Really? To vaccinations for children, we. That's why private schools exist. That's why religious instruction exists. No, we do not. Hold on a second. We, there is, you are, okay. I'm I'm not, I'm I'm unfamiliar. I'm not literate enough to to, to go into Public institutions, public institutions can, there have been Supreme Court court cases since the 1920s saying city schools, public, public institutions can deny unvaccinated people entry and services, but private institutions, that's where it gets much more constitutionally questionable. Right. Okay. So in any case, um, but here's the point. I don't think this speech is about what we think it is about. He said it's about getting a handle. We are going to beat COVID. We are going to get a handle on this and fix it. Okay? I don't think that's what this was about. This was about, I am here to show you that I am doing lots of things that you can now praise me for doing because you spent a month attacking me for Afghanistan, including liberals, and I can't take it anymore. So now all of you neurotic lunatics can walk around saying, I'm, it's good I'm wearing a mask and he's going to protect me and I'm, he's making 100 million people do this and he's doing that and he's going to authorize the use of this amount of money to do this and there's going to be boosters coming and all that. And it's like, oh man, he's back in charge. Whew. Well, I guess that whole Afghanistan thing is over. That's what this was about. Well, and also well, politically positioning, uh, politically positioning himself in opposition to uh, both DeSantis and Governor Abbott, the, the Republican governors whom he made a not at all thinly veiled uh, reference to, although not by name in this speech, saying they just want to ignore the science and the body. They'll have you know mobile morgues, but not do the right thing. Never. I mean, again, that's absolutely insulting to the American people's intelligence because the governors who have the highest body counts are still blue state governors like Cuomo and I mean, this is ridiculous. But if the Biden administration's logic last week is still pertains, and I think it does, that there is no 
constitutional way to do this, then they are once again pursuing a favorable news cycle at the expense of a much broader problem with their own credibility because it hits the courts and it turns out that they were right all along, that they didn't have this authority. And then the president looks impotent and he looks foolish and he looks out of touch and he fails everyone. He fails the people who want this. He fails the people who don't want it. And this is the third, fourth, fifth example of that sort of thing. They, they just don't have any strategic vision. Well, I think what they have, what they have is they are sitting on the, on the nest of contradictions that we have now been talking about for 20 months, which is uh, there's a terrible disease. We need to fight the disease. Oh, look, there's a vaccine coming. That's great. But the vaccine comes from Trump. That's bad. Then Trump loses. The vaccine is coming from Biden. So that's good. Kamala Harris couldn't take it when it was being managed by Trump. She gets a shot very publicly when it's managed by Biden. The public health authorities say you have to lock everything down and you have to do all this stuff with cleaning surfaces. No, you don't. It turns out you don't have to clean surfaces. It's all aerosolized. Wait, it's it's six feet. No, it's three feet. No, it's this. No, it's that. No, it's the other thing. And here we are. And it's, you know, 20 months later and everyone is going crazy because here's what we know. There's a terrible thing going on. The Delta variant is killing 1,500 people a day. And there are, you know, 150,000 people who are testing positive. Although a lot of that is because there's renewed testing after the summer because people kids are going back to school. So the, the testing numbers are high. So the COVID numbers are high. So... Uh, This is a terrible thing happening, but it's actually happening to a group of people over here who have been, who have decided to play dice with their lives and their health and the health of maybe their families. It's hard to tell. And uh, nonetheless, this now obliges everyone to live in a modified set of federally mandated rules on how everybody should behave in the workplace and elsewhere. So you then have to say, what's going on? It's that these people want to tell, this is a thrill for a certain type of person who wants government to tell people what to do. And and it's a it is I'm there is a slippery slope and I know as conservatives we always talk about the slippery slope but it's because it exists so this the logic of this kind of of political action and use of federal power has many implications down the line because you know what else has been talked about as a public health crisis racism climate change gun violence all of these things have a rhetorical aspect that is being linked to public health to health to health to health. So as soon as you allow for the government's power to do this on this scale, there is the risk of public health being invoked for a broad number of social crises for which there is not actually a scientific solution, but for which there can be federal power overreach. Look, I mean, you know, conservatism as defined in the United States is not the conservatism of other countries which is to say that unified national purpose and the use of the of a, of a of a centralized government to sort of make policies that are you know meant for the common good is in other countries in the world a conservative value it is is the british system it is you know 
it is not our system. So on the one hand, the idea that government authority needs to be done to pursue the common good and the health of people and all of that, and that we're supposed to use the levers of power of government to impose order on people who need order imposed on them, right? That That is a, a distinct type of conservative value. It's just not the American conservative value, or it's not the way America works. America is a more complicated, messy system because liberty is is our root, not order. And And the idea that the individual is at the summit of life as opposed to the collective, that is an American traditionalist conservative idea, but it's not a conservative idea everywhere, which is why it can be very hard for certain types of people to get it into their heads that telling, that saying, I am going to use the power of government to make people do good things is fundamentally un-American. See, I I think the reason uh, the Biden administration is now at the point of proposing potentially unconstitutional things to get us out of COVID or to combat COVID is because the truth is there was never much for the president to do on this to begin with. I think it was a lie. Uh, you know, once, once, once COVID had spread and, and, and Trump was in office, the, the idea that another president was going to get us out of this from the White House was always a preposterous notion that 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 isn't how this was going to work. And now it's these many months in on Biden's watch. We're not out of it. I mean, by my count, we're 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 doing great because because of the vaccine, but we're not out of it by the numbers. Um, So now now he's stretching out into these into this unconstitutional territory. Can I briefly explore the, the John John's thought there? Because I thought it was actually rather deep and sort of exposes, maybe it's a bit of a digression, but exposes um, how we've drifted along with the intellectual currents on the right in the Trump era in a way that was probably misleading about the nature of, of American politics on the right. Um, yes, that sort of conservatism, that Goldwater-ish and libertarian conservative conservatism um, doesn't allow for that sort of thing in the United States, but a sort of Whiggish populism uh, like a, a meliorist view that that society inexorably leads towards the advance the advancement of the human condition that is a, a sort of brand of conservatism that's prevalent on the on the European right, and the Biden administration has exposed kind of the hollowness of the populist impulses on the right when it comes to um, using government to interfere in your individual life. Um, using government to uh, create conditions to seek outcomes that social engineers want, you, uh, uh, you know, non-interventionism abroad, all those things have, be- have been exposed as rather shallow ideological proclivities of the populist, uh, on the populist right that were embraced by the voting population in order to support Donald Trump and his interests. But I don't think there were really profound, deeply held, sincere values. They've all been sort of thrown to the wayside for political utility. Look, I think to combine what Noah was talking about and what Abe was talking about, um, we we embrace this weird uh, celebrity president model 
in which the president gets credit for things that he is not responsible for, like the condition of the economy, whereas people attempt to assign him credit for the condition of the economy, and he is blamed for things for which he deserves no blame, like what happens when a hurricane hits someplace, or Deepwater Horizon springs a leak or something like that. Like you become the most famous person in the world as president and 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 the, the political system in the United States has now devolved to the point where the president is supposed to have mystical powers to combat or control or contain or manage the unmanageable and things that no one ever expected politicians to manage and no one ever expected the political system to be in charge of and the vac and the the virus was the ultimate expression of this which is a disease happens a disease happens and suddenly how politicians respond to the disease is what's important so trump does x y and z and it's bad and cuomo does x y and z and it's good and what's happening is that and and a lot of that is true. Like it's what Cuomo did was not good. It was bad. What Trump did was not bad. It was good. But the disease is the villain and it's not really a villain. And it, you know, but it, it cause it's not conscious. It's not a, you know, it's not an actor. Um, but we then assign the president, some kind of superhuman abilities to manage and handle these things. And then that becomes the political game, which is it's all Trump's fault. <clears throat> It's all Trump's fault. It's all Trump's fault. And so I'm going to become president and I will fix it because he's bad and I'm good. Well, then it turns out that Trump, who was bad at handling the virus, as it happened, you know, to the extent that he was, he was inconstant. He said dumb things. He confused people, couldn't get a handle on it. He tried to talk, talk, you know, like sweet talk it and all that. And on the other hand, he embraced this idea that we should move heaven and earth to get the vaccines on a fast track. We'll buy them sight unseen. We'll pay all this money for them. We'll do this, that, and the other thing, right? And so that was the one thing that he did that was the most important. And then Biden came in and sort of, to be fair to him, after an early mess, they got, they righted the ship and got the vaccine distributed and helped in getting the vaccine distributed nationally in a in an overwhelmingly effective way. And that's what they did. They facilitated something, an idea that happened in the private sector about mRNA, and then they just did what they could not to stand in the way of its implementation. That's the ultimate conservative thing. It's like, you know what you should do? Just don't gum up the works. That's what government does. It can gum up the works. And right now, I think we can make a case that government is gumming up the works, right? It's gumming up the works on probably on on under 12 uh, vaccination approval and on and maybe on the boosters and on, certainly on the rapid home tests, which are freely available in Europe and cannot be imported here because some panel of the FDA doesn't think that they, like they'll kill people. So in this way, I think you're both Noah and, and, and Abe are right, that we have we have somehow ended up in a weird situation in which there's not much that Biden can do to help, but he said he would. He said he was going to fix it. 
and it's not within his power to fix. And now he's doubling down on fixing it. And that's an interesting development that has led him into these weird contradictions that he uh, exposed in his speech. Now, guys, let me pull back, talk to you about our friends at ExpressVPN. Have you ever browsed in incognito mode? I know you have. It's not as incognito as you think. Because incognito mode, like the Chrome browser itself, is a Google product. Google has made its fortune by tracking your movements online. There's even a $5 billion class action lawsuit against the company in California where it's accused of secretly collecting user data. Google's defense is that incognito does not mean invisible. So how do you make yourself as invisible as possible online? You use ExpressVPN like I do. Look, even in incognito mode, your online activity gets tracked. Data brokers still get to buy and sell your data. One of those data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP address to uniquely identify you in your location. But with ExpressVPN, your connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and your IP address is masked. Every time you connect to ExpressVPN, you get a random IP address shared by many other ExpressVPN customers that makes it harder for third parties to identify you or harvest your data. Best of all, ExpressVPN is super easy to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop, or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button for instant protection. So if you really want to go incognito and protect your privacy, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN. Visit expressvpn.com slash commentary and get three extra months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash commentary. Go to expressvpn.com slash commentary to learn more. So tomorrow is, of course, uh, the uh, the anniversary, the 20th anniversary uh, of the of the events of, of, of 9-11. Um, and... Uh, we are celebrating it with the uh, Taliban back in power in Kabul, which was the first the first act we took to um, respond to 9/11 was to remove the regime that had housed the force that had that had struck us. And so, 20 years later, we find ourselves in a solemn and extraordinarily depressing uh, state of. Um, I don't know what you would call it, the eternal return, you know, what Goethe called the eternal return, uh, where we are now apparently, we have, we decided to make exactly the same mistakes that we made before and allow the same things to happen again. Um, Abe, I, I wanted to turn to you because uh, some people have been asking us, you know, to do the, where were you on nine eleven stories? Um, and and uh, my story is not, particularly interesting and I sometimes sometimes find these stories a little solipsistic because they're about you and not about what happened but I think you, your your larger story is a story about what 9/11 meant not what happened on the day but but how 9/11 affected you sure yeah no it was yeah my, my actual nuts and bolts where I was is not particularly interesting either I was I was in New York and and uh, woke up and I heard them talking about it on the radio. A friend came over who didn't go to work and we were all sort of freaking out. And, you know, I remember just walking outside and looking, looking up at the, everyone, there was a kind of, everyone was sort of wary of the sky at that point uh, for those hours after. I remember that, that feeling um, and, you know, and, and all the horror that, that, that everyone endured. So on the, yeah, in that sense, it wasn't that interesting, but 
Um, I think John, what John is referring to is that I I had a sort of complete um, political turnaround and ideological turnaround that began at that moment, um, you know, uh, un, un, unknowingly to me, in that. So we were attacked on 9-11, and I didn't really understand why. I had kind of no knowledge of, um, uh, like, you know, uh, uh, geopolitics or foreign policy. I was I was vaguely liberal uh, at the time, but you I was... Were, you were in your late 20s, I right? was in my late 20s. I was liberal. I was overwhelmingly, though, like a... a, a a policy ignoramus. I, I didn't. I didn't really know much of what was going on. So uh, most of my liberal friends, you know, when I would say, "Sir, why would why were we attacked?" There was some version of uh, what well, we had it coming. If 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 not that we deserved it, at least it, it could be understood. What 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 the the, the sentiments behind it could be understood. Um, and the, the overwhelming one was that we didn't take enough interest actually in in the events uh, uh, in the rest of the world. Not not that we were um, bullies, but that we, I remember hearing a lot that we treated the Middle East as a gas station. Um, and I and I thought, well, I said, okay, that sounds bad. Then I said, well, wait, that, that actually sounds, that doesn't sound bad. You mean we, we, we buy their natural resources? So let's, that's, that, that would be good for them. Anyway, on and on it went, and uh, I heard that we were evil because we supported Israel. I heard that we were evil because we didn't care about uh, what went on in the rest of the world. And I began to, uh, I said, I, I said, I suspect some of this is probably true. Let me go read about it. And in my effort to prove my liberal friends right, so I so I could get on the same page with them about you know why why America had this coming in one way or another, I I said. Oh no! Wait a second. Uh, we didn't deserve this at all. These are, these are, these are fascistic monsters who did this because we are, we have, we are free and unique uh, in our freedom. And these are people who are anti-freedom. And to the extent that um, we can combat this, we must uh, by 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 any means we can. And then I started hearing about uh, these people called the neocons back then and back then right at the right after 9-11 it was always in conspiratorial scary tones that the the the, the neocons are going to do this they're going to do that and i so i started looking into the neocons and i realized oh i i, I thought i came up with that idea you mean you mean they want to they want they want to fight for this stuff or, or you know out, out beyond our borders well I, I guess i'm a neocon and that was that was sort of the beginning of you know of the of, of things turning bit by bit so I, I was I was really I started out, I guess, as a sort of liberal hawk, but it didn't last long. So, Christine, you were an academic, uh, you know, largely interesting personal background, right? Grew up going to fundamentalist schools, became a American historian. What what was it that happened to you around that time? Um, I was living in Washington, D.C., uh, about three blocks from the Capitol building in a fourth floor walk up apartment um, and actually had uh, I, I, the impact of the, the plane hitting the Pentagon. I, we felt where we were and we saw the smoke immediately I Had a friend who was working there. And for two hours, a bunch of us were desperately trying to reach him. He, he got out. Um, 
I just remember the panic when my parents finally got through on the phone to me. The phone lines were jammed. People were being evacuated from the Capitol and they called and they said, there's a fourth plane and it's unaccounted for and you should probably evacuate. You should get out of work because they knew I lived a few blocks from the Capitol building. And I looked out the window and I saw people streaming down the street and I thought, this is really bad. <laughs> and I just stayed put because there was nothing to do. And that was fourth plane, which which they now believe was supposed to target the Capitol was the one that, that crashed in, in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, because thanks to the passengers taking charge of, of the, the hijackers in the cockpit. Um, I will say that there the, the, the weirdest thing about being in Washington was um, how quiet it became in the immediate aftermath that evening. And for many evenings afterwards, the only sound were the F-15s flying sorties above the city. The airports had all been closed, as you recall, and it was eerie. There was an eerie silence, but there was also a real sense of um, resilience, not panic, not fear. I mean, I was surprised by how quickly people were like, all right, we got this. There was there was a sense of unity, which I know a lot of writers today are saying immediately dissipated because the war on terror was so controversial. But that was a real moment where the American people, and I, I'm including all the friends, I had friends on all points of the political spectrum. If you lived in New York, if you lived in DC, you had an instant, immediate reaction of we're hunkering down, we will see this through. And it was a, it was a, really comforting moment, despite all the anxiety of listening to those fighter jets flying every night, night after night. Most of us didn't sleep for, for the first week. Um, it was very anxiety inducing. Um, but I will say that for me, I had a similar, I was already pretty happily conservative at that point. I'd made my intellectual journey from moderately liberal as a college student to as a grad student becoming more conservative. Um, but like Abe, the other, the, the rest of the world, foreign policy and American values vis-a-vis how we are treated by the rest of the world became much more important to me after 9-11 and much more a part of my intellectual journey. And like Abe, I really did try to figure out more about what are our interests um, as a country and what are we supposed to be doing as a country in the rest of the world and, re- and not just as a reaction to an attack, but in general. So that part of it, I, I agree, I had a similar kind of awakening to how much I didn't know and understand about what we should be doing as a country. Um, so I, I just want to talk about something that happened months after 9-11. Um, I was living in Brooklyn Heights, which is a neighborhood in South Brooklyn, just just south of the Brooklyn Bridge. And so my apartment window looked out on the East River and was a mile as the crow flew to the site of the World Trade Center. And for months and months and months, there was in the sky where the World Trade Center had been a black cloud, a black spot in the sky, sort of like the demonic version of the cloud that followed the Hebrews in the desert that was that, that was the divine presence uh, and rain manna on them and all of that. This was its, you know, evil reverse incarnate, a spot in the sky that was there because the fires at the Trade Center did not go out for nine months. And what was burning there was the plastic from the, and the rubber, from the, what had been inside the towers on every floor, every computer, every phone cord, every piece of office furniture, 
everything and it burned for months and months and months and it stank it smelled the smell was pervasive so much so that uh it turns out that you get used to smells there's a thing uh, they've tested it that you know you can get used to any smell after 30 seconds so you'd wake up in the morning you'd smell it you'd be kind of like startled and then you would kind of settle in um so uh, for me, uh, this was not uh, an event that ended, that happened and then ended. And it was not that it uh, had these dramatic crescendos like the, you know, the, when we went into Afghanistan or we went into the Torah Bora Caves or the debate over, you know, what to do about Iraq started pretty much a few months thereafter or the Patriot Act or whatever. It was that in my life and where I lived, the, the, the collapse of the towers was ongoing. It did not happen, you know, from 8.42 until 10.15. It went on for a year and it was, you could see it. And it's 20 years later and the thousands of people who could not be stopped, workmen, uh, firefighters, everybody, who went there because they wanted to see if they could get people out to, to, to help, to clear the site, to do something about the rubble, who are now dealing with the incredibly adverse health consequences of what had happened to them on those days. But they were not, as, my, as a friend of mine who was then uh, the director of um, city planning in New York said, there was no way to keep them away. The steel workers, the, uh, you know, the iron workers, they were going there and they were doing this so they could do something. They could do something because something had happened that hadn't happened in the United States since 1812, which is that we had been attacked on our soil by a foreign force that had done this terrible, evil thing and I will never forget that I that that will never escape my my mind or my consciousness and all every effort to um abstract it right to say we deserved it or it was because of oil or this or that or the other thing um that's all that's all intellectualizing for an event which was that these two buildings and flight 93 and the pentagon and all of that that this this was an attack on us that has had lingering consequences, and some of them are very parlous, and some of them, as we were talking about last night on our on our text chain, kind of make one fearful that in the long run, the question is, who won the war on terror? Did we win the war on terror, or did our enemies in the end win the war on terror by... By, by by the condition that we now find ourselves in, where we're so divided, we c- couldn't even keep twenty five hundred people in Afghanistan to prevent the Taliban from taking over. Um, and and so that is the uh, that is the deeper and darker and longer range question that I think we're facing here is: Did we learn? So we thought that the country was a had come together and understood that we were now living in a serious time against a serious threat. And 20 years later, we have, we have had two successive presidents whose idea was maybe we can just wash our hands of this and move on. Uh, Maybe three presidents. I don't know. I mean, you could, you could say that uh, you could say that Obama was the same, but that, uh, 
but that you know we took a wrong turn in in how we looked at this and uh, and it's only hurt us and so we need to you know we need to pull back lick our wounds and figure out you know how to how to to cultivate our own gardens i want to hear what noah who's younger than the rest of us his yeah. i want to hear what where his experience was of this oh i don't think mine is especially <clears throat> um, indicative of you know broader cultural trends. Um, yeah, uh, it, a brief digression though, when you talk about the sense memory of, of this sort of thing, um, I, I was and remain haunted uh, not by the uh, the olfactory uh, aspects of this, but um, the audible aspects of it, the eternal chirping, the endless chirping of the uh, firefighters, badges that firefighters wear when they get trapped. And it's just this constant chirp uh, to alert alert their you know fellow firemen where they are in like a darkened room, and it just went on four months, just constant chirping. Um, and I still can't hear that sound without just being haunted by it. I was uh, a performing artist, and uh, in tw- I was nineteen at the time. I was going to be turning twenty. I had spent that summer living south of Canal, um, so I was you know in the shadow of the towers, and I actually spent a fair amount of time in the plaza that summer. I went back and it was like a week into my sophomore year of college when, um, when it happened. And, uh, that changed the course of my life because I, you know, like everybody else became glued to the news. CNN was the only channel that they let you have in, um, in my college. It was woefully insufficient to my information consuming needs. Um, so I started, you know, I was glued to the radio. I had been a conservative and was a conservative. I never went through any sort of intellectual evolution over it. Um, but I was more inclined towards interventionism and, uh, inclined towards seeing how the, um, the global war on terror would unfold. So I spent my evenings glued to the radio, listening to a talk radio show at the time hosted by John Batchelor and Paul Alexander, which, um, had a conspiratorial bent to it, but was forward looking and talked about the covert sub rosa aspects of the global war on terror as it was unfolding. I loved the show. I wanted to get into the building, so I took an internship in sales, which has nothing to do with entertainment or uh, you know performing arts. And I hated sales. And I, when I went over to Phil Boyd's office, who was the program director at WABC at the time, and said, hey, can I sit in on this show? And I did, and I sat there for four years and became a news, radio, news talk radio producer. And from there... You know, the, the course of the evolution of my career led me in this direction. So it was, you can blame 9-11 for all this. If you're not a fan, this is what got me here. Um, I, I do think that it's worth spending a couple of minutes. We've gone, we're gone pretty long, but uh, spending a couple of minutes on this, on this question of uh, the unity and whether the unity was false. I mean, um, there was unity. Uh, I think as Abe indicates, there was less unity than people now remember there being unity. Um, I think just as uh, when something uh, dramatic happens, like we can even look at this as like the flip side of Black Lives Matter or George Floyd, which is to say that uh, for really, I think for the first time in my lifetime, um, the people who were inclined to think that America had it coming uh, were rocked on their heels and and f- had had very little in the way of being able to respond well or adequately to what to the the overwhelming fact of 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 what had happened um 
and uh, they were kind of steamrollered. Uh, but uh, and you had like people like Katha Pollitt, who was a columnist for the Nation, who wrote this piece about how her daughter, I think, who was in high school, went to her very delicately and said that she wanted to hang an American flag from the balcony of their apartment, and her and her feelings of horror and disgust at this, and then basically ending up doing it uh, because she didn't have a reason to tell her daughter why that shouldn't happen. Um, but uh, the real Cathopolit soon emerged, and people like Cathopolit soon emerged. We have a very good piece in our current issue of commentary by Brendan Stewart about a book. Brian Stewart. By, no, excuse me, Brian Stewart. I apologize. Uh, um, uh, by uh, 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 Spencer Ackerman, which basically cast the entire war on terror as a as a uh, political, as a monstrous, as a wildly wild overreaction uh, to unleash American monstrosity upon uh, us and and on the world, and that worldview which Ackerman was expressing in the pages of the New Republic as early as 2003, when I think he was an intern, um, that was just all there. It's just that you know every time someone poked up their head to kind of express it, like. Pat Leahy saying, I mean, there was this moment when Pat Leahy was a senator from Vermont, uh, opposed some of the provisions of the Patriot Act um, in a in a in a meeting or a public hearing with uh, then Attorney General John Ashcroft, who proceeded, who said, "I don't know if we need to have the two. I mean, we don't really want to have our intelligence agencies talking to each other." Whereupon Ashcroft pulls out this manual that they had gotten, this Al Qaeda manual, and starts reading about how they know how to manipulate us because we don't let our intelligence agencies talk to each other. And 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 um, Ash and and Leahy being visibly kind of like shrinking in his chair. Because he had no response to this, except the response is that the ideological wars over America, its purpose in the world, and what it, what our enemies are up to, and why there is this uh, uh, tendency among American the American intelligentsia on both sides of the aisle, uh, both sides of the ideological divide, to um, uh, side with our enemies on the grounds that they're more serious, they're more sober, we're either foolish, stupid, malign, terrible, or awful, um, uh, is a is something that just didn't go away. And there was a moment at which it looked like it kind of went away. Uh, but then uh, the minute that we actually needed to respond and to act, uh, that consensus shattered, I think. And... Uh, um, uh, the idea that you know the United States could not allow uh, could not allow this worldview, this um, Islam, you know the the, the Islamo fascist, uh, whatever you want to call it, worldview uh, to go unchallenged, uh, simply became something that no one believed. You know that 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 the intelligentsia stopped believing it. Having said that, it's twenty years later, and we have not been attacked on American soil since nine eleven. And in that respect, the war on terror was a wild success, though it has no defenders anymore, except maybe right right here. And as I defend the war on terror right here, I am sitting uh, in my X chair. And, you know, if you've ever been behind the wheel of a high-performance uh, sports car and you realize how much better a car can be 
you never want to settle for a regular car again. I feel the same way about my X chair. From the moment I sat down in it, I understood why many consider X chair to be the finest office chair in the world. Can your current office chair give you a massage while you're working? My X chair can. Can your current office chair heat up or cool down? My X chair can. It's all in the LMX massage and temperature regulation exclusively designed and made for X chair. And once you feel the customized support of X chair's patented dynamic variable lumbar DVL, your back will never be happy in any other chair again. Take my advice. Try X chair for yourself risk-free for 30 days. Once you realize how much better your chair should be, you'll never go back. I promise. Go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, C-O-M-M-E-N-T-A-R-Y.com for $100 off your order. X chair is a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort. That's xchaircommentary.com. Just a few uh, little notes I want to make. We will not have a show. uh, I'm just saying this now just to let people know. We will not have a show next uh, Thursday, which is Yom Kippur, uh, since uh, people were taken uh, by surprise that we were off much of this week. I just want to tell people that. Um, Noah will not be here next Friday. Uh, We'll have to figure out how to, right? Is that what you said? You're making a face. No, I fully intend to be here next Friday. Okay, maybe it's I got the Friday Thursday one. Thursday and Friday after. Okay, it's Thursday and uh, Friday after, so I don't even know what I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, but we're not we're not here next next Thursday, and um, and for uh, the subscribers to commentary because of all the Jewish holidays, uh, uh, if you uh, if you uh, wait to get your as we say your mailbox and your magazine every month, our October issue is probably going to be a little late because we have to close it after the high holidays. Are over, at, but it will be online uh, available to you a week after next. I don't even know why I'm talking about this now, but it's it's on my brain, and we needed to say something after the X chair ad, so I'm saying this. Uh, it's hard to say. Have a wonderful weekend because we do have the we do have the 9/11 anniversary tomorrow, and it is indeed a very solemn and distressing day. Um, but uh, but please uh, please commemorate it as you see necessary and have a wonderful Sunday. If you can have a wonderful Sunday, we'll be back on Monday for Abe, Christina, No, I'm John Popper. It's Keep the Candle Burning.